Chapter 11 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spirit of the Cushion's Kid Sherwood's block-long business street was silent, dark, and deserted. The one gleam of light in the night was from the incandescent that hung above the big safe in the offices of the Muir Lumber Company. Examining the strong box with a calmly critical eye of an expert stood Boston Blackie. He ran his hand delicately over the burnished steel, fondled the combination knobs, and turned to the masked man with him who was unpacking a suitcase. "'It's a good box,' he said. "'Let's get at it. It will take a half hour to cut into it, and that hick watchman might get back before his time.' Two steel cylinders that just filled the bottom of the suitcase were taken out and set up before the safe. From each a hose led to a metal nozzle punctured by a tiny blowhole. A heavy curtain of blankets was carefully draped above and around the outfit to cut off from the street the dazzling bluish light of the flame that was to eat through the solid steel. Boston Blackie took off his mask, replaced it with heavy automobile goggles, and then crawled beneath the blankets, which were propped away from the door of the safe, by chairs. "'If the copper comes before I finish, don't forget what I told you,' he warned. His companion nodded assent. From beneath the blankets there began a hissing, sputtering sound, and between them the faint reflection of a blinding light was visible. The second man, armed and masked, stood just inside the front door, peering out into the night from behind drawn curtains. Twenty minutes passed. There was a faint thud as a heavy piece of metal fell to a cushioned floor. The sputtering noise ceased for a moment, then began again. Five minutes, and there was another thud on the floor. Then the light beneath the blanket died, and Boston Blackie, throwing them aside, rose from their folds. "'She's open,' he said. "'Take a look.' Both doors of the safe were swung back, and a round, gaping hole in each showed where the irresistible heat of the oxyacetylene torch had carved its way through the solid steel as a knife slices cheese. Boston Blackie drew out a dozen or more unbroken packages of currency and a canvas sack full of silver and scattered them on the floor. "'It's the payroll, Luz,' he reported in a whisper. "'I'm glad it happened to be here tonight. It would be a nifty little haul, eh?' So far Boston Blackie had conducted the business of the evening with skill, dispatch, and in all ways as a man of his reputation might be expected to do. Nothing remained to be done to complete a neat job but to bundle the money into the empty suitcase and slip out the rear door. Instead, the safecracker began a series of preparations which would have puzzled and amazed others of his hazardous profession. First, he put on his mask. Then he unlocked the front door of the office with a master key he took from his pocket. He opened it and left it slightly ajar. Returning to the safe, he studied carefully the arrangement of the desks and counters, finally indicating one with a jerk of his thumb. "'Get behind there, Luz, and whatever happens, keep out of sight until I give you the office.' Here is your blanket, and be sure you get him on the first throw, for we can't have any noise. Blackie tossed a blanket to his pal, who obeyed him in silence. He isn't due for twenty minutes, but he might be ahead of time, and we mustn't have any kind of a rumble tonight, he commanded as he drew a chair behind the safe and seated himself. He rolled a cigarette and lolled back, waiting with the unruffled nerves of a man enjoying a quiet evening smoke in his own home. 
the lighted incandescent left the dismantled safe and scattered packages of money in plain sight from the half-open door, while the minutes dragged slowly away in absolute silence. As the clock showed the passing of the hour, a step sounded on the board sidewalk down the street. "'He's coming,' whispered Blackie, slipping out of his chair and crouching behind the safe as he readjusted his mask. The footsteps approached slowly and suddenly stopped before the open door. There was a quick ejaculation of alarm as the watchman saw the wrecked safe and scattered money. He hesitated, fumbling for the revolver he never before had needed, and his eye roamed the room in sudden fear of a bullet from its shadows, a bullet either of the two men hidden within could have sent into his body a dozen times as he stood silhouetted against the window. But no shot came. Instead, Blackie, who had been watching from behind the safe in grim amusement, slowly rose into view with his hands held high above his head. "'Don't shoot!' he cried. "'You've got me. I quit!' The watchman succeeded at last in dragging out his gun and covering the safe-cracker. "'Keep your hands up!' he commanded nervously, advancing on his prisoner. "'No monkey business, or I'll pop you ashore!' "'I don't want to commit suicide.' growled Blackie. You got me with the goods, and I surrender. The watchman felt for his handcuffs with his left hand. That settles it, ejaculated Blackie disgustedly as the bracelets came into sight. I thought I might get a chance to beat it when we got outside in the dark, but now I suppose you're going to cuff me to yourself. I'm done for keeps. That's just what I'm going to do, the watchman exclaimed adopting the suggestion and showing rising excitement as he thought of the reward his night's work would bring him from the lumber company. Then I'm going to march you over to the Mr. Muir's house and keep you safe until he gets the sheriff. You thought you could come up here from the city and blow a safe and get away with it, did you? I guess you know now you can't. He locked one handcuff over Blackie's extended wrist and snapped the other on his own arm. Come on now, march, he commanded. You're some copper. As he snapped out the word copper, Blackie drew slightly away from his captor. It was the signal for which Luz was waiting. The thick folds of a blanket dropped suddenly over the watchman's unsuspecting head. A blow on the wrist knocked the revolver from his hand, and he was thrown to the floor, struggling fiercely but in vain to free himself. With his free hand, Boston Blackie snatched a bottle from his pocket and emptied it over the blanket. The captive's struggles grew fiercer and gradually ceased as the sickly sweet fumes of chloroform tainted the air. At last he lay quiet and inert. Blackie drew out a bunch of keys, unlocked the handcuff that still bound him to the unconscious man, and rose to his feet. "'Neatly done, Luz,' he said smilingly. "'He's out. I'll attend to him now. You get the boys in the auto. Be quick, and remember, not a sound from the engine.' Luz slipped out the rear door and disappeared. Blackie lifted the blanket and examined the drugged watchman, then dropped it lightly back over his face. Not even scratched. And he'll have a story to tell after this night that'll last him the rest of his life, he mused. A moment later, Blackie's quick ear caught the sound of an auto being rolled quietly by hand into the alley behind the building. Three masked men appeared at the rear door. Between them, bound and gagged, was a prisoner at the sight of whose white, rage-contorted face Boston Blackie's lips parted in a singular smile. The prisoner was Sir Harry Westwood Cameron. Sir Harry's bloodshot eyes roved in terrified amazement over the strange scene before him, the wrecked safe, the packages of money scattered over the floor, the body hidden by the blanket, and the four masked men who guarded it. 
When his auto had been stopped at the bridge a half-mile out of town, and he himself seized and bound, he had thought himself the victim of a hold-up. But what sort of hold-up men were these, who carried him back to the office of the Muir Lumber Company, the last place on earth he must be at dawn, and held him there now, amidst the ruins of a cracked safe? "'I'm going to take the gag out of his mouth. I want to talk to him. If he speaks above a whisper, crack him over the head,' said Blackie to his helper. "'What does this mean? What do you want?' gasped Sir Harry as the loosened gag released his lips. "'You!' Boston Blackie's eyes hardened into points of steel. "'Me? Who are you?' Boston Blackie thrust his masked face close to Sir Harry's. Through the slits in the mask, the bigamist felt rather than saw two cold eyes that seemed to bore him through and through with a message of hate and menace. "'Who am I? In spirit, I am the Cushion's kid. The same Cushion's kid round whose neck you tried to put a rope.' to buy your worthless self a few extra months of freedom. The Cushion's kid, who has left his cell at Folsom Prison tonight to teach you, in the hour when you thought you had beaten the world, that a man who plays always pays, and in the same coin. Sir Harry shrank away in a frenzy of uncontrollable fear from the voice that spoke from behind Boston Blackie's mask and stared up at him with wide, terror-stricken eyes, scarcely able to believe what they saw. "'And these,' with a gesture, Blackie indicated the other masked men, "'can you guess now who they are? There stands the Kokomo Kid, whom you induced to join you in a break and then deliberately betrayed to his death. Do you remember? You thought he was safely underground in the prison cemetery, didn't you? He isn't. He's here tonight, too, in spirit, to watch you pay your debts.' now do you begin to understand why you are here and what is before you fred the count as he heard his prison name flung at him with unutterable hatred by the mysterious man before him sir harry sank on his knees with a fear of death in his heart whoever these men were who whatever they were they knew him and all his prison treacheries he thought he knew what to expect from them with chattering teeth he pleaded piteously for his life "'You don't realize even yet what is before you, or you wouldn't beg for life,' snarled Blackie in disgust. "'You will live to beg for death. Listen carefully, Fred the Count. From the day you left your cell, you have been watched and followed step by step in preparation for this hour. We're not going to kill you. That's too quick and easy.' Instead, we're sending you back to a cell to stay until they carry you to that cemetery to which you once thought it clever to send other men. I let the watchman on the floor here take me in the act of cracking this safe. I let him handcuff me to his wrist. Then we chloroformed him, and now I'm going to handcuff you to him and touch off the burglar alarm. When Muir and the rest come running down, they'll find you cuffed to the watchman, who will tell them how he caught you. You see the end now, don't you? Safe-cracking to an ex-convict means life. And to make quite sure no mistake will be made, I'm going to put this envelope with your prison photo in one of your suitcases. The boys up at Folsom will welcome you back, won't they? Ah, you begin to get it now, don't you, Count? Sir Harry groaned and groveled on the floor. You'll learn your lesson well in the years ahead of you. Boston Blackie stooped and snapped on Sir Harry, the handcuff dangling from the still unconscious watchman's wrist. Then he unbound him, and, turning to one of his silently waiting trio, said, "'Bring her in.' 
I promised she should see him. From the darkness outside the door, a slight, girlish figure with face masked like the rest slipped into the room and stopped before the man on the floor. Suddenly she stooped and looked straight into his face, the face of the now pitiful wreck of a man who but an hour before had boastingly called himself Sir Harry Westwood Cameron, as he hurried toward a bride and a stolen fortune. All my life I thank God for this moment. The girl, little Miss Happy, cried softly to the cowering man, All my life I shall remember your face as I see it now, until I die. If I must go on, Dylan, without the kid, the years will be less lonely, less hard, because of the picture of you as you are tonight, which I shall always have with me, Fred the Count, you traitor. God I know now is just. She was gone as silently as she'd come. Boston Blackie pressed the burglar alarm. We're done, Count, he said. You're the first man I ever helped send to prison. The first man I ever knew whom I think belongs there. Courts don't do the kind of justice we've done tonight. Don't ask mercy of me. Ask it of the men who are in their graves because of you, if you dare. It's a job. It's a frame-up. I'll tell the truth about it. Sir Harry screamed, raving and struggling with the desperation of utter despair. Tell it all to the judge. I believe you, but he won't. Blackie flung back at him as he slipped out the rear door behind his pals and disappeared. When the townspeople, routed from their beds by the alarm from the Muir home, came running to the company offices, they found Sir Harry Westwood Cameron, English lumber buyer, raging like a wild beast and screaming curses from foam-covered lips as he tried to drag the helpless watchman toward the door by handcuff that cut them both to the bone. Sir Harry's trial was a short one. A jury of sunburned woodsmen heard the watchman's story, examined the accused man's prison photo, inspected the endorsed Muir check found in his pocket, and then, after listening with smiles and covert winks to the prisoner's wild tale of four-masked conspirators who had dragged him against his will to the scene of the crime, brought in a verdict of guilty. Fred the Count, no longer dapper or well-dressed Sir Harry Westwood Cameron, was on the last stage of his journey back to Folsom Penitentiary. Handcuffed to a sheriff, he crouched dejectedly in the prison van as it slowly climbed the hill that shut the prison from view. As the van turned the crest of the grade, the driver stopped to rest his horses. Fred the Count looked up. Below him, exactly as he had left it on that morning, only a few short weeks before, when he went out with the swaggering, self-sufficient ruthlessness of one who thinks himself master of his own fate, was the prison he had never expected to see again. The quarry gang, a group of pygmy figures in stripes, was working among the rocks. One looked up, recognized the Count, and called to his fellows. Tools were thrown to the ground, a score of striped caps were flung high in the air, and cheer after cheer of savage satisfaction floated faintly up from the convicts to the man who was going back among them to do all of it. It was his own world's welcome home to Fred the Count. Abject and utterly broken in spirit, the Count dropped his head on his manacled hands and sobbed aloud. "'If God is good,' he cried. He will let the knives that are waiting for me down there get me soon. 
If he is merciful, he will let me die tonight. Boston Blackie's prophecy was fulfilled. Fred the Count was praying for death. End of chapter 11